Welcome to Sundial on WLRN during our fall membership drive. I'm Carlos Frias. We're bringing you some of our best conversations. The author Sandra Cisneros thinks of books as medicine. They were her medicine when she was growing up in a Mexican-American family. She had six brothers and privacy was hard to come by. She found it in books. You can feel that quality in her first novel, The House on Mango Street. It's the coming-of-age story based on her childhood on the west side of Chicago in the 1960s. It was a national bestseller. It came out nearly 40 years ago, and the stories still resonate. It's easy to pop into any one of the vignettes and find her gentle medicine there. The stories are simple. The messages run as deep as you dare to read. That's one reason it's become a classic for children across the country, especially Latino kids. It's required reading in schools across South Florida. Sandra has written 13 books since then. Her latest is Woman Without Shame. It's a poetry collection about aging, desire, spirituality, and yes, shame. We spoke to Sandra back in April. She was in town to pick up an award at Florida International University, and she was in conversation with the poet Richard Blanco. But first, she came into the studio to read us some poetry and to hide out with us from the rainstorm. Welcome, Sandra. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to dry out here because the bottom half of me is still wet from traveling over here in the monsoon. And our studios can get frigid, but fortunately our producer brought you our little cobijita, our little uh, yeah, nice I little blanket. Yeah, I have blanket. grandma's shawl around me warming me up, and <laughs> I have you uh, conversation, so I, I know I'm going to be fine. Yeah, nothing warms us up like some good conversation. <laughs> right. Um, you know, recently I, I thought of you um, before I saw your poetry collection um, when you were asked about books being banned and you had this note that really stuck with us where you brew, you drew this beautiful analogy of books as medicine. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I especially want to talk about that in Florida. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I used to live in Texas, and the, these are two states that have been very fierce about book banning. Uh, you know, books, to me, and borrowing this analogy from my colleague, poet Joy Harjo, uh, books are medicine. And some prescriptions are what need, what you absolutely need, and it's going to fix what ails you. And, of course, some medicine can be very toxic if it doesn't apply to your illness. So I think that, you know, we should be allowed to uh, peruse the bookshelves and find what heals us. And if some books don't speak to what ails us, we should just put it back on the shelf. It's for someone else. It's not your prescription. But we shouldn't say, okay, close the pharmacy. All this medicine can't work for me, so we've got to shut it down. You know, there's something for everyone. Everyone's different. And if it doesn't appeal to you, you know, you just put it back. Are you hearing that, Mr. Governor? Are you <laughs> hearing that? Okay, well, anyway, uh, I think people are afraid of things that... Uh, aren't their prescription, and those those decisions really are coming from places of fear. And when you're afraid, you make wrong perceptions. And you've, you've said that, I've heard you say that before, speaking specifically about folks uh, joining to the band without necessarily having, having read, read the, the book. book. That's right. That's what happened with House on Mongo Street. It was banned in Arizona. It's been banned in Kentucky. And, you know, uh, people just sometimes just jump on the frenzy of uh, the mob, and they're not looking at things with clarity and not thinking, well, maybe this book's not for me, but that doesn't mean it can't be for you, and it should be there for you. Right. I love the analogy of books as medicine, and I guess that would make authors doctors. 
We are doctors. We're healers. In a different age, we would have been the shamanas, the shamans, the curanderos, uh, the the healers of the community, the visionaries. We are all of that. Uh, we're working from an intuitive place, and in writing, we're healing our own wounds. You know, when you look at societies that have the healers, they're often the medicine men and women who have had a trauma and survived it, and they're illuminating the path for others who are going through that process of trying to heal. So that's what I think my job is. It's one of service, and it's very important that my books be out there for those who are trying to overcome the same kind of traumas that I went through. You know, I wanted to refresh myself on that book because all my kids read it in school, and I sat down with it, and I found myself not putting it down until I got to the end. And it really, the introduction to the 25th anniversary version of The House on Mango Street really spoke to me because there's a section where you talk about that idea uh, that you wanting the books to serve the reader more than just being an expression of, more than just being an expression, that too, but serving the reader. Well, uh, if you're an artist, you're compelled to create in order to transform your demons into light. That's your job. You do it because if you don't, your demons will transform you. That's the reason why we make art, to heal ourselves. But once you are illuminated and transformed for the better, you think, wow, this is some powerful magic here. I've got to share this. And it becomes work of service where you find that what you're doing helped you to uh, get out of a very bad situation by writing. And you find you find your community that is hurting from the same thing, and you become uh, a healer, whether you like it or not, or you become like a monk or a nun or a nurse or a doctor, serving with love that community. And when you were you were young, you were asking yourself that question: How do I serve? And you were even thinking: Should I should I be a should I be a doctor? Do I need to go back? You know those. Yeah, I did I have that really... question when I was writing House on Mango Street. Am I doing enough by? working with these high school dropouts that are trying to get their GED. Am I doing enough? Because these kids had harder lives than I could ever imagine. And I doubted whether teaching them creative writing or literature was going to help them at that time. And even though I was writing their stories secretly on my own, I just felt so powerless, as many teachers do with limited funds and difficult situations. And I just didn't know. I said, maybe I should be taking classes on, you know, birth control and teaching young women how to control their fertility so they won't have to make decisions about abortion. We want to prevent pregnancies, you know, how so we don't get to that stage. So we don't have the trauma of making decisions about uh, keeping a pregnancy. How do I go about, you know, making change and being of some use to these young women so they're not young mothers uh, before they raise themselves as kids. You know, that was essentially the question. So I saw a lot of things in, in the community that hurt me deeply, and I felt so powerless to make change. So I, I doubted my own artistic I guess you could call it artistic calling. I, I didn't know what it was at that time. What What did it take for you? Do you remember? Do you can you think back at some of the things that that made you feel like okay, this is my artistic calling, and with this, I can do what is in me. 
to well, do that. Well, you know how role. they talk about an overnight success of House on Mongo Street, but that was really 20 years. So I like to remind people who are following their dream that sometimes it takes 20 years or 30 or your, your entire life. Uh, you have to have tenacity. And uh, I always had a day job. I didn't expect to get invited to WLRN News. I didn't expect to be talking to you or to have any acknowledgement from the community. I was just doing it to stay alive and so that my spirit wouldn't die. You know, each day, if you're an artist, you have to create or your spirit dies and you could become ill. In order to heal myself, I would write something someone said to me and uh, something I witnessed and I had no idea that it was going to uh, be of service until 20 years after I picked up my pen on this project. Sometimes it takes that long, you know. You have to uh, realize that creating art is a, a long-distance run. I think one of the beauties of that of your first work, and there's been so much work since then, but really your work in general, I think, is that it's accessible. I try. I try to write for that person who's driving the bus or the person who comes home whose feet hurt or mother who's working all day and is tired at the end of the day. I try to write stories that anyone could feel at home. They wouldn't feel like, uh-oh, I, I wore the wrong clothes or uh, I'm not smart enough. Uh, I think people who have working class lives uh, have learned so much from the University of Life. And I, ne- I didn't want anyone to feel ashamed when they opened my book. Because the people that know the most sometimes are people that don't have uh, fancy titles or degrees, but they've gone through University of Life, and maybe they're 16 years old, and they've gone through things that presidents of nations have not lived through. That was Sandra Cisneros. She's the author of 14 books, including The House on Mango Street. Still to come, we continue our conversation with Sandra and get into her poetry collection, Woman Without Shame. Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN during our fall membership drive. I'm Carlos Frias. Let's get back to our conversation with the writer Sandra Cisneros. Her latest book is a poetry collection titled Woman Without Shame. We had a group of local third graders here just visiting the studio today. And we thought, you know, what? how do we show them how radio works? How do we explain to them, you know, the back and forth of it and the recording? And we thought, what better way to show them how this works and how your book still applies to them than to have them read a little bit of it. So we actually had them in this room, 30 kids. And <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> 90 of them read part of it. So would, if it's okay, I'd like, I'd like to hear this section that we recorded this morning, just a couple hours ago. It's the final essay in the house on Mango Street. Mango says goodbye sometimes. I like to tell stories. I tell them in my head. I tell them after the mailman says, here's your mail, here's your mail, he said. I make a story for my life. For each step my brown shoe takes, I say. And so she trudged up the wooden stairs, her sad brown shoes taking her to the house she never liked. I like to tell stories. I am going to tell you a story about a girl who didn't want to belong. We didn't always live on Mango Street. Before that, we lived on Loomis on the third floor. And before that, we lived on Keeler. Before Keeler, it was Paulina. But what I remember most is Mango Street, sad red house, the house I belong but do not belong to. I put it down on paper and then the ghost does not ache so much. 
I write it down and Mango says goodbye sometimes. She does not hold me with both arms. She sets me free. One day I will pack my bags of books and paper. One day I will say goodbye to Mango. I'm too strong for her to keep me here forever. One day I will go away. Friends and neighbors will say what happened to that Esperanza. Where did she go with all those books and paper? Why did she march so far away? They will not know. I have gone away to come back for the ones I left behind, for the ones who cannot out. I'm wondering what, how that strikes you because I know to me it, it moved me to hear them read it. Well, I'm blinking back tears, listeners, because <laughs> I was just working on those lines. You know, I'm still working on House on Mongo Street with composer Derek Burmell. I just came from Brooklyn. We are collaborating on the House on Mongo Street, the opera. So, wow. yeah, yeah. If you Google Derek Burmell and put uh, House on Mongo Street, you'll hear uh, a soprano singing one of the arias from the opera in progress. And, uh, you know, we are working with those li- very lines that the children were reading. So it's so um, resonant to me and emotionally uh, warming to see, wow, this is something I started writing when I was 21. I am 68, going to be 69 this year. And the story is still doing its work. Because stories, to me, have to do their work. They present themselves like Trojan horses. You take them in, and then when you least expect it, you know, the the Greeks climb out of it and do their work. I, I want people to think and be changed by a story. I didn't write it for children, but children are allowed to come in and enjoy it. I wrote it for a very sophisticated uh, high school uh, age uh, as teenagers who had lived lives nobody should live and uh, uh, it's for adults and children and senior citizens and people who are just learning English it's a book that serves all ages I wrote it very carefully so as not to shock anyone uh, but I did not censor myself it's one of the interesting things is I had a copy here that I was actually going to ask you to sign. And as, as we were sitting here, one of the young women says, I've been asking for this book for a while at the library and, and at, at her, her school library, and they didn't have it. And so I gave her my copy. And she was so she was so thrilled to, to be able to have this thing that she'd been asking for. You know, I, I am so uh, lucky to hear that when I get letters from people who don't like to read or are afraid of books and say, this is the first book I read from cover to cover. I didn't think I was going to like it, and it's my favorite book now. That just makes me feel like, wow, I did my job. I brought this story of young people who are struggling and who have uh, difficult lives, and it is nurturing people who are living difficult lives. And maybe they didn't like books before, but perhaps they'll take a chance and read other books that will help illuminate their path your your book it's it, it reaches out so much but it requires of you to do that and yes I, and I've read I've read you talk about solitude and the necessary now now you're not you're not like a recluse like a JD Salinger but no. but but you need that space can you talk a little bit about why that's important for yeah, you yeah because after I go home after I see you I'm gonna go to the San Antonio book fair and then I'm gonna go home next week to Mexico where I live and I won't go out for a week. I'll be so tired 
uh, I will need to recharge, just like you got to replug your iPhone and it has to recharge. I won't be able to create or do anything because just being in contact with people, uh, it kind of like uh, burns burns me out. The energy is so hard on me because my heart is open to everything, to text and to people's stories and to people I witness and animals and trees. That when by the time I get home, uh, I have to do exactly what this poem says. I'm going to read a poem called Remedy for Social Overexposure. And this is a a poem from your new book, uh, Woman Without Shame. Yes, and it's a a prescription for people out there who have been socially overexposed. Seek a pirul tree and sit beneath immediately. Remove from ears and tongue words Fast from same. Soak in a tub of seclusion. Rinse face with wind. In extreme cases, douse oneself with sky. Then swab gently with clouds. Dress in clean pressed pajamas, preferably white. Hold close to the heart chihuahuas kiss and be kissed by same consume a cool glass of night read poetry that inspires poetry write until temperament returns to calm place moonlight in a bowl Sleep beside and dream of white flowers. This is generally what I have to do when I go home. (laughs) It's like my recipe for restoring my spirit back to normal. I just have to follow these instructions, and I'm good as new. And there is, um, because your book has shame in the title, I'm curious about what it took to say, this is what I need and that's okay. Like, I don't need to feel, uh, you know, shame or an embarrassment because this is a part of what I need to create. Like, that's an okay thing to feel. Well, you know, um, Carlitos, I come from a big family. And uh, one of the things that as an only daughter, I was obliged to do a lot of social engagements, you know, cousin's party, so-and-so's birthday. You got to do all this stuff when you're from a Latino culture. Mm -hmm. And it was very hard for me to say no. And now that I'm older, I give myself permission to say, you know, I can't do that. Uh, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I cannot go out after I come back from a trip. I need to recharge. I cannot do a dinner party because it it's going to affect me the next day when I have to write. I will be so tired. It will be like I went to a disco all night. You know, I'm just <laughs> going to be so tired after talking to your guest that I have to stay at home. I cannot accept this social engagement. And I'm not trying to be a diva, but the work I do is work of the spirit. Uh, my heart is broken open all the time. And if I go out, I won't be able to write tomorrow. And I have to be able to write. That was Sandra Cisneros. She's the author of 14 books, including her latest, Woman Without Shame. And she's a national treasure. Still to come. We continue our conversation with Sandra, and she gives us some much-needed life advice.
Welcome back to Sundial on WLRN during our fall pledge drive. I'm Carlos Frias. Let's get back to our conversation with the author, Sandra Cisneros. Sandra's the author of 14 books, including the classic, The House on Mango Street. We talked with her back in April when she gave us some much-needed life advice. But first, she talked with us about her latest book, Woman Without Shame. You've written a version of this book in Spanish, which is no small feat. It's not, as we know, it's not translation as much as it is interpreting. And um, you were looking for a, a poem that you're going to read in, in Spanish In Spanish. You know, what's happening now, Carlos, is the poems are coming out in Spanish. You know, uh, because I'm thinking in Spanish, I'm dreaming in Spanish, and I'm writing in Spanish. You know, I'm not the, the greatest speaker of Spanish, but... Um, I'm I'm better than I used to be. So I want to read a poem I wrote in Spanish, and then I had to translate it into English. And it's called uh, Quiero ser maguey en mi próxima vida. And the English is I want to be a maguey in my next life. Maguey is a century plant. It's a beautiful plant that they make uh, mezcal out of it. Out of. Quiero ser maguey en mi próxima vida. Dar cara al sol todo el día. Reventar hijos al aire como una piñata. Ahorrar agua. Brotar una flor con fleco estirándose al cielo. Estirando, estirando al cielo. ¡Qué lujo! Quiero pertenecer a estas tierras que existían antes de que el mundo fuera redondo, picar las nalgas de los que se acercan demasiado, regalar agua miel al que se atreve a chupar mi jugo y morir de esta comunión, deshacerme como ceniza, Volver a vivir en la tierra violenta, explotar de la huerta como paricutín. Volver, volver, volver a renacer, morir para siempre ser. Wow, and to think that those now, those thoughts are now coming to you in Spanish. And yeah, they come the in Spanish way. now, and I even talk to myself in Spanish, which is bien curioso, I think. <laughs> because you didn't as a as no, I, I I grew up speaking Spanish to my father, who was a Mexican national, and speaking English to my mother, who was born in Chicago. So, and I was educated in English, so my vocabulary is getting better. But I make a lot of mistakes. I have a poem about the mistakes I made. May I read my poem? Is there time for me to read the, the poem about the mistakes I make in there, Spanish? There is always time for Sandra Cisneros. <laughs> pues de, qué lindo eres, qué lindo. But uh, this is a poem that I wrote uh, because, you know, I, I, I hear things one way, and when it's not your first language, you make a lot of mistakes in what people are telling you. You think they're telling you one thing, and the more... Uh, the more they talk to you, the more you realize, uh-oh, that's not what he's saying. Okay, let me see. Let me find this poem. It's called um, Figs, and it's on page 
I don't know what page it is, but I'm going to look for it. And it's for my acupuncturist who was talking to me and inspired this poem. Figs. Some words trip me in my second tongue. I say pepino, cucumber, when I mean pimienta, pepper. Confuse ginebra, gin, when I mean ginger, jengibre. And when the acupuncturist tells me, el hígado enamorado quiere decir el cuerpo está sano, the liver in love means the body is healthy, I mistake hígado, liver, for fig, eagle. I prefer my translation. All's right with the world when figs are in love. That is so lovely. And it really is. And you know what? And I think so many people listening right now, because especially because we're in a place like South Florida, can identify with that feeling of of being embarrassed and saying embarazado, <laughs> right? Well, there's a lot of things I say that I'm not even going to repeat on the air that have gotten me in a lot of trouble because <laughs> I just mix up words. But, you know, it gave me that poem. And so it's okay. You know, I'm not ashamed to write about my mistakes. It's the thing I'm, I'm learning with, with the years. The older I get, okay, well, maybe my hearing is going on one ear and my eyes aren't as good. But, boy, I'm getting so much smarter, and uh, and I'm funny, and I laugh at my own jokes, so that's the good thing about getting older. <laughs> well, we laugh at your jokes, too. <laughs> what do you think thinking about shame has done for you um, uh, to be able to process that? In other words, what thinking about that topic and the things that you're ashamed of. Is that's that- one of the topics you've got to face through your art. I always tell my my young students, you know, make a list of 10 things you don't like to talk about, the things you're ashamed about, and write from that place so that you can release them. You don't want to hold that in your heart. It's going to make you ill. So write it. You don't have to share it with anyone. You don't have to publish it. You don't have to read it on the air. You can burn it, tear it up, let it go, release it from your heart. So for me, it helps me to... um, uh, what would be the word? Uh, de-shame myself mm-hmm. from things that uh, have taken my voice. And I don't want to be a woman who's afraid of certain subjects. I want to tell you my secrets so that I don't have any secrets. And that way you have no power over me. So I'm going to reveal all. I'd rather that I tell you than to have the National Enquirer tell you. <laughs> so that all that's material for my fiction and my essays and poetry and, you know, you never run out of things to, to write about because there's so many things that get blocked in your, in your soul, especially things you're ashamed of, things you're afraid of, bloopers, mistakes you made in your life. Then you write about them and you say, oh, that wasn't so bad. Why was I keeping that secret for so long? Now that I've let it go, it makes me laugh. It's almost like an exposure therapy, right? Like uh, exactly. the, thing that, the thing that you're scared of. Diving into it, in other words. Face it. You face it and you wrestle with it. And you know how you see those photos of those ancient Cretan priestesses that used to do acrobatic acts on the back of a bull? You know, you face the bull, you grab the horns, and then you do a backflip and you land on your feet and the roar of applause is coming from yourself. 
it's more than uh, it's more than overcome it. It's it's make it it's make it your your art. It makes makes it your performance. Yeah, it's like an Olympic ten. Yes. <laughs> what are, what are some pieces of advice that you think that you would have liked to have had as a mentor? Now looking back, things that you could that felt like really opened the world up for you. I wish someone had told me not to waste so much time mooning and grieving about them. The guy who left, who done me wrong. You know, I wasted so much time being brokenhearted. And, you know, men come and go, but essentially you have to be in love with yourself. And I, I just feel like, you know, if you're looking for love, you know, go sit under a tree. You know, go to the botanical gardens, get on a mountain, adopt a dog. You know, <laughs> there's love all around you. You don't have to sit at home moping and feeling, oh, I pobre de mí. Uh, I just feel so much better now, and I wish I hadn't wasted all of those years with the the men who done me wrong. Yeah, don't waste your time on a broken heart. No. Turn it into poetry. Turn it into poetry. Get outside, you know, walk and, and get a life. That was Sandra Cisneros, our personal life coach. She's the author of 14 books of prose and poetry, including the classic The House on Mango Street. Her latest is Woman Without Shame. And that's Sundown for Tuesday, October 3rd. Leslie Ovaya Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. And Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Mertz is WLRN's VP of Radio. Engineering our board today is Richard Ives. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, Leila Cobo has interviewed all the big Latin music stars. Bad Bunny, Gloria Stefan, Julio Iglesias. But tomorrow, we're interviewing her. Leila's vice president of Latin music at Billboard. We'll revisit our conversation with Leila as Latin Music Week returns to Miami. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. Good vibes only.